Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest is a coach, trainer and author who works in business leader development training for over 160 multinational companies across the world. He is the author of the books Overcome and Get It Done and Shaping Parts. His new book, The Story Habit, reveals a practical approach to helping leaders tell and shape stories. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. Would love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Jamie Dixon to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Jamie. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me and, and nice to meet you as well. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. I'm really curious to find out about how you ended up getting into leadership development. What was your journey to what you do right now? I actually started as an English teacher and I started a long time ago. I just graduated from university. I was working in a coffee shop and I thought, this isn't going very well. <laughs> Three years at university uh, gets me into a coffee shop. And at the time as well, I'd had an argument with my, my girlfriend at the time. And in a kind of fit of rage, I just decided to hell with it. I'm leaving the country. And the easiest way to go abroad and spend a significant amount of time abroad was to teach English. So I moved to China uh, as an English teacher. And I planned on just staying as an English teacher for a year. But that turned into two years of English teaching. And on the side, I learned to speak Mandarin. And then I, I kind of fell in love with the country. And so I used my Mandarin to move into corporate. And there was a great job opportunity at Amway China. They had a massive training department for all of their salespeople that they were recruiting. And for those who don't know, Amway is a bit like Avon. So they had these salespeople who would sign up. They had about 100,000 new salespeople a month at that time. So they needed a massive training department to train them. And they had all of these training resources in China. But in Southeast Asia, they had nothing. And Amway Southeast Asia was getting very jealous. So they needed someone to act as a cultural bridge, someone who spoke English and Chinese, someone who had a bit of experience in the classroom. And I was the perfect fit. And I, I didn't know anything about leadership development before then. But I was flying around Southeast Asia, watching, you know, MBTI trainings, emotional intelligence trainings, all kinds of psychologists trainings and so on. Uh, and it really just opened my eyes to leadership development. And I just found it fascinating. And so from that moment on, I decided, well, I, <laughs> I guess the career for me has, has found me. It wasn't intentional, as I think a lot of people's careers are not intentional. It was purely by accident, but very glad that it discovered me. Is your background, so what you got your degree in, was that in psychology or anything related? And when you moved to China, did you know much Chinese? So my my degree was in environmental science, so not not the slightest bit related. And I think I had these dreams of getting a job swimming with dolphins, and then I, I realized that was just a dream. I also have a, a master's degree now in human resources management, which involved a lot, uh, included a lot of psychology. And I'd say that's a huge interest of mine, and probably should have been what I studied at university. I I love psychology and specifically behavior change and the. The books I've written are all ultimately about behavior change. So I think when I joined Amway and started learning about leadership development, that set me off on a journey for learning about behavior change. And as for Mandarin, I, I didn't speak Mandarin when I first moved to China. 
And I learned by sitting on my own in my apartment, reading a textbook, learning a few phrases. And then once I felt I'd mastered those phrases, I'd go out and I'd use them immediately. I remember once spending two hours walking up and down the street, asking strangers what the time is. <laughs> and uh, by, by doing that, I remembered how to tell the time in Chinese pretty quickly. In your day-to-day life, you work with business leaders from a variety of different backgrounds. Are they all in one specific sector or, or do you work with leaders from all different kinds of sectors? So I work with leaders from all different kinds of sectors. Most of my work is based here in China. And so there are some industries that are a bit more predominant. So I do a lot of work with semiconductors, high-tech industry, internet companies. There's a lot of those companies over here. One of the really fascinating things of living in, about living in China is because it's the, the manufacturing hub of the world, you learn just how many companies there are in the world. And if you think of something as simple as a remote control for your TV, There's a company that sources the plastic. There's a company that sources the rubber for the buttons. There's a company that sources the pixels for the paint. And the company that makes the the motherboard for it, the company that transports it, a company that designs it. So you come across all sorts of these random companies here in China. So it's all across the board. But I'd say a common thread that ties together all of the work I do is it's ultimately about helping leaders influence their stakeholders. And in the last two years in particular, I've worked with a lot of Chinese teams who are really struggling to influence their leadership teams overseas. And a really big and common problem in China is China is such a unique market. You know, there's no Amazon, no Google, no Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, or anything like that. They have their own e-commerce platforms, their own social media. The way consumers buy things is very, very different. And a lot of leaders of multinational companies in Europe and the US, they just don't understand how it works and they don't appreciate that it's, it's very, very different and that they really need to change the way their business runs in order to be successful. And on the other hand, you have the Chinese team who understand so well the local conditions, but because of cultural differences and language barriers, they really struggle to explain that to their leaders. And so you have these multinational companies heavily invested in China uh, who are not getting the results that they're expecting. So I, I do a lot of work helping the Chinese team bridge those kinds of gaps. So if I am a business in the UK and I'm wanting to break the Chinese market, Obviously, China's a massive global superpower and a massive market for many Western businesses. What would you say are, is like the biggest difference? Some examples of the differences that businesses experience. One is just the speed at which things move over here. It could be speed in terms of competitors. They are so much faster at getting things done especially the local competitors, because they don't have to follow all of these strict regulations that, for example, European companies have to follow. So uh, competitors tend to move a lot faster. They do things a lot cheaper and their quality is actually not bad. It doesn't matter if you're making clothes, electronic goods, or even roads. Local competitors have improved in quality significantly over the last few decades. So speed is a massive, massive difference. And not just in terms of how competitors move, also in terms of consumers. 
sometimes it's absolutely crazy what consumers expect. Like if you buy takeaway, you expect it to be at your door within 15 minutes. If you go on an online store, you expect to speak to a customer service agent immediately, not a robot, an actual person. (laughs) And so uh, managing an online store uh, is an incredible amount of work. And another thing about speed is the speed at which regulations change. So, for example, a lot of people know that in China, education is highly valued. There's a massive education industry in terms of private tutoring. And just overnight last year, a lot of private tutoring was rendered illegal for a variety of reasons. But all of a sudden, overnight, your business is illegal (laughs) Uh, and no one saw it coming. So that put a lot of people out of work. So the speed at which things change is just, it's nothing like what we experience in Europe or the US. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> and Western companies in particular really struggle to keep up with that speed. That's probably one of the biggest challenges I see for multinational companies operating in China. Uh, they just need to be a lot more agile, a lot faster, a lot more flexible with how they do things. In terms of leadership styles in Eastern countries and Western countries, have you noticed many differences and and what are these differences? Yeah, uh, there's a really striking difference. For example, in China, people are taught from a very young age to be guai, as they call it, which means obedient. If you're obedient, you follow the rules, you do what people say, then that's a really, really good thing. That behavior is encouraged by parents, teachers, and even peer groups from a very, very young age. So in China, you have a lot of people who are very obedient. They follow the rules, they do what they're told, and they listen to instructions, and they're waiting for instructions. Whereas in the West, we maybe value independence a lot more. You know, in the West, we may value our ability to speak out and share our own thoughts and challenge authority. And there are pros and cons of both. I think in China, you know, during the pandemic, uh, I think it's a really striking example. The first year and a half, China managed it amazingly well, whilst the rest of the world seemed to really mess up big time. And that's because in China, people followed the rules. They did what they're told. And in the West, there was a lot of people who maybe didn't. And perhaps the leadership felt that they couldn't control people that much. Right now, it's the exact reverse. We've just come out of the Shanghai lockdown over here. And that was extreme to the max. It's the first time in my life I've actually had to ration my food and be afraid that my kids are going to get forcibly taken away from me. And that is a result of people being too obedient and not not challenging back. And so when it comes to leadership at work, one really typical scenario, you have an expat manager, someone from the UK, for example, or Denmark, they come to China to manage a team and they come with their cultural values of you know, egalitarianism. I'm not higher than you. I'm not more important than you. We are all equals. And I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear your opinion. I want your input, which is in contrast to Chinese culture, where we listen to the leader, we are waiting for instructions. What do you want us to do? We will go and do it. We won't challenge you. So you have these Western leaders who come like, what do you think? 
and then silence. <laughs> so, and at the same time, you have Chinese leaders who go overseas and they have to make the exact opposite adjustment. There's huge differences in, in leadership styles and it really requires a lot of adjusting if you're going to be successful in leading in this culture or, or any culture, really. Could you maybe tell us an interesting or helpful approach each of these cultures have towards leadership that could be beneficial to kind of anyone? Mm. So I, I think a typical example, if you are working with a Chinese team, what they need are really clear instructions. Even if you want to hear their opinions, you want their input. You need to give them clear instructions about how to give that input and what specific input you want. So what a lot of Western leaders are used to is saying, what do you guys think? And opening it up to any kind of possibility. And you know, we're generalizing here, but a lot of Westerners are used to that kind of openness and being able to create the structure by themselves. In China, they expect you to give some kind of framework. If you say, what do you think? You want to let them know, I want to know if you think there's anything wrong with this. And could you tell me what you think is wrong? and what you think we should change about it. And I want three examples from each of you. Like if you get that specific, they'll give you their opinions. They'll do it very, very well. So a really critical skill over here is giving very, very, very clear instructions because they're waiting for those instructions. That's what people have been conditioned to over here. And I think for a lot of Chinese leaders, it comes down to letting go a bit more and not feeling like you have to be in control of so much, which can be quite liberating, but it can also be quite difficult to give up that control because, you know, it's just what they're conditioned to. But giving up that control, allowing more participation, getting used to being challenged as well, I think is is something that they may struggle to get used to because in the West, we are, and I, I keep generalizing the West, the West is also quite diverse cultural group, but in a, a lot of Western cultures, we tend to be more confrontational. It's not uncommon to be sitting at the dinner table of your family and some argument erupts about Brexit <laughs> and Uncle Dave and Auntie Sally or whatever, they're at it again. And in China, that just doesn't really happen as much and it's not encouraged but that's something for a lot of Chinese people, they have to adapt to when they go overseas, adapt to the confrontational nature of our cultures. And remembering that any kind of challenge is not challenging them as a person. It's just challenging their ideas for the sake of better understanding their ideas or trying to create better ideas. Bringing it back to this idea of storytelling and why storytelling is important in leadership, can you explain to our listeners why why storytelling is so important? Mm, that's a good question, because when I started writing my book, The Story Habit, it came after a number of clients started reaching out to me and requesting storytelling training. Storytelling is a bit of a buzzword, to be honest. It's a very popular topic for, for leadership development trainings, but I'm not entirely sure if everyone fully understands why it's important and what we actually mean by storytelling. And so I found it very interesting when they reached out to me and I'd ask them, why do you want storytelling training? And they'd say they'd have a group of engineers who give really dull and dry monthly reports and we want them to give better monthly reports. So I'd go off and read up on storytelling and I'd learn about the hero's journey, which is a 
you know, it's a structure for telling stories about the normal person. Something happens to them. They overcome a challenge. They return as a hero. And that's a great structure if you're writing the Game of Thrones, for example. But to turn your monthly reports into that kind of structure is just overkill. And so I got really curious about what do we really mean by storytelling? And why do so many people want it at work? And that set me off on the journey of writing the story habit. But to cut a long story short, what I learned was when we talk about storytelling, what we really mean is making meaning. Those engineers giving their monthly reports, the problem was that their monthly reports were meaningless. They were just giving facts and statistics and no one understood what they were talking about. And so any technique that helps us create meaning from the information that we want to communicate, that's what we ultimately mean by storytelling. And I, I think another way of thinking of it is that storytelling is about speaking the language of the mind. And if you think about any great leader in history, like leaders whose names we still remember today, one really common trend that they had was they're all fluent in the language of the mind. They're all amazing storytellers. Every word they speak makes meaning and captures the audience and changes the audience's minds and moves the audience towards action. So I think when we talk about storytelling, we're ultimately talking about speaking the language of the mind. And that's a universal language. And it's essential for being a leader. I think it's the thing that makes the difference between someone who's just really good at their job and someone who's a leader. It's that speaking the language of the mind. And what does that mean to you, speaking the language of the mind? In the story habit, I have a framework for telling stories, but also for shaping stories. And I'll explain what I mean by shaping stories in just a moment. But the framework is three words, relate, challenge, resolve. The idea is if you look at any story, it always starts by presenting a character in a situation the audience can relate to. I watch a lot of Disney movies right now because... I have two young kids. Disney is amazing at relating to their audience. For example, the movie Frozen is, I think, one of the highest grossing movies of all time. And the reason it was so successful was because it did an amazing job of relating to its audience. It was mostly preschoolers. And it included some elements that they could relate to, such as this feeling of being out of control. And anyone with a young child will know that they're not completely in control of their emotions. So that's an experience they can relate to. Another thing was living in this fantasy land. And young children, they have crazy imaginations. Whenever I go out for a walk to the shopping mall of my son, a pavement turns into an adventure playground. We're running away from sharks and trying not to jump in the lava. Their, their imaginations are just active all the time. And so Frozen presented this fantasy land that let their imaginations go wild. It also talked about the value of family, which is also really important to them. So if you look at any good story, not any story, but any good story, it always starts by relating to the audience. And then the second part is challenge. And so a principle about storytelling is that every story is about change. A story is never, I got up, I went to work, I came home. The end. It's never about life as normal. It's always about something changed. And how do people respond to that change? And so when we learn about the character in their situation, in the relate part, what we're really learning is the stories that they believe in that help them navigate the world they're living in. And then something in that world changes. And the stories they have 
are no longer relevant and they're lost. And when they're lost, they have to find a way of overcoming the challenges that are caused from being lost. And so that's the final part, resolve, where they find a way of overcoming the challenges. So relate, challenge, resolve is how to tell stories. And you can use exactly the same process to influence and persuade people to shape the stories that people believe in. And for example, right now, this has been a common challenge for the Chinese leadership teams that I've been working with. Their leaders in the US or Europe have a lot of stories about China, about human rights abuses, about intellectual property theft, about authoritarianism, and so on. Some of these stories are true, some are not true, and some are somewhat true, but misunderstood. Nonetheless, those are the stories they believe in. And those stories are stopping those leaders from being comfortable investing more into the business in China or adjusting the policy to better fit the China market conditions. So when these Chinese leadership teams have to go and persuade the US leaders or Europe leaders, they really need to shape the stories those leaders are believing in. And Relate, Challenge, Resolve works in exactly the same way. What we tend to do when we try to persuade people is we go straight to challenge and we point out, no, you are wrong. Here is something better for you to believe in. Here's a much better idea. And what we really need to do is start with relate. We need to relate to their story, relate to what they believe in, show we understand why they believe that, show we understand why that's important for them. And as we're relating, if we're relating good enough, they'll nod their heads. That's a really critical sign. And once you've related enough, you can start challenging what they believe about you know, about China or whatever story it is they believe in, you start poking holes. And if you've done a good enough job of relating, they'll let you challenge their stories. And then after you challenge their stories, you've changed their mind. Now it's time to get them to take action, which is the resolve part. And it's all about making it very clear what is the next step for them to take. So relate, challenge, resolve, it works for telling stories, but I think a much broader application for leaders is for shaping the, the stories that people believe in. And if you can do that, you can persuade people, influence people, change minds and inspire people to take action as well. This framework, like as you just described, is a great persuasion tool, but for a leader, how can they utilize this just on a day-to-day -day basis to lead their team in an effective way? Yeah, great question. That's actually the reason I called the book The Story Habit, because you can think of relate, challenge, resolve as actually individual skill sets. And it's great to be able to master these skill sets. But I think the easiest way of mastering any skill set is starting with a crucial habit. If you develop the right habits, the skill set will naturally develop from that. And so in the story habit, I've listed 16 different habits that leaders can develop to help naturally develop those skills. And for example, for relating, one of the habits is just simply shutting up. <laughs> Whenever you feel there is a disagreement or you think differently to someone else, that is an opportunity for you to learn the stories they believe in. I'll give an example, a personal example. Last year, it was summertime and I went to Starbucks to catch up with one of my friends and he had a new Chinese girlfriend at the time. So he brought her along and you know, we got chatting and got to know each other. 
And as we were chatting, my friend was asking me, yeah, how have you been recently? It's been a long time. I said, oh, I've been good. But kids, my God, kids are relentless and there's <laughs> so much hard work. And I was just venting about how much hard work kids are because they are hard work. As I was venting, his girlfriend suddenly sat up and said, raising kids is an honor. It's a privilege. You should be happy as a father. And I said, what? what? Yeah, I am happy. And yeah, it's an honor. It's a privilege. And it's a great thing having kids, but it's hard work. And sometimes I need to vent. And she said, no, 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 no. You should always be grateful for having kids. And my friend kind of wised up to what was happening because I didn't want to back down. I believe it's important to vent. She didn't back down. She obviously believed in something. And so my friend changed the subject. But an hour later, she had to go away for something. Uh, and when she left, my friend said to me, you know, Jamie, she was abandoned as a baby. And she was really, really lucky to be adopted by foster parents. In that moment, I realized that her challenging me was a sign that she had a different story to believe in. And what a lot of us fail to do is relate to the stories people believe in. And you can think of conflict in general as just people believing in different stories. And uh, you know, there's a lot of ways of managing conflict, but I think probably the only way of solving conflict is to relate. If you can show you're trying to understand their story, then you can find a solution. But if you don't try that, the conflict gets worse and worse and worse. So shutting up <laughs> is such a simple habit. Simple doesn't mean easy. It's not always easy to shut up, but it's a very simple thing to do. When you feel they believe in something different to you, shut up, listen, ask more questions, try to learn what their story is. And ironically, the best storytellers I know, and I challenge anyone listening to this as well, think of the best storytellers you know. They are also fantastic listeners because in order to be a good storyteller, they need to be able to relate to you and they need to know what you've experienced and what you care about, what things mean something to you. And there's, there's a whole range of other habits as well for challenging and resolving. But I think that's, that's a really important habit for a lot of people, I think. And I think a big part of that, it seems, is to realize that there are people who have had very different experiences to you. Because I think, especially over the past you know, couple of years on, on a global scale and kind of national scale, like especially in the UK, there's been a lot of sort of internal conflict with ideas and ideologies. And a big aspect of that is sort of this inability to be able to, to relate to someone else who perhaps has had a very different life experience to yourself. So, yeah, just shutting up and, and kind of trying to be a better listener is, is kind of maybe the first step to being able to relate. But if there are maybe two people or a group of people who who even once when they listen to each other just can't find or can't seem to find any common ground, what, what, is, what is the next step? I think another thing that is probably a prerequisite for shutting up is to notice when you feel unsettled. And I remember, I've been in China for 15 years now, my first four years, I was just angry all the time because I was living by my British rules in China. It's just the stupidest thing you can do because nothing is going to go as you would expect it to. 
And I remember one incident in particular that just really shook me and woke me up as to what was actually happening. Uh, I was on the subway and an old lady next to me, she shoulder barged me out of the way as she was getting to the exit door. And I thought, how dare she? That's so rude. And I, I, I was having a very, very bad day at the time. A lot of things adding up. And I lost control for a moment and I, I shoulder barged her back. <laughs> and a second later, I just realized, wow, Jamie Dixon, this sweet little boy from Mid-Sussex has just shoulder barged an old lady on the subway. <laughs> <laughs> what have I become? And I thought, okay, I think I've crossed a line. I, I should really apologize to her. And so as she was standing there waiting for the doors to open, I went to go and apologize to her. But I looked at her face. She hadn't even registered that I'd pushed her. And I realized in that moment that pushing, it wasn't pushing. It was another way of communicating. It was, it was a gentle tap. And that was it. And it, the point was to let me know that she was getting out without grabbing my attention from whatever I was absorbed in at the time. I realized from that moment that all of the anger I had felt was all of my fault. It wasn't these other people's fault. It was all my fault. And I think if you can notice that a lot earlier, whenever you feel unsettled, frustrated, triggered, remember, that's you. It's not other people. It's you. And it's your responsibility to manage your response to that, not their responsibility to change what they say to you. And yeah, within reason, there are probably some, ex there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, if you are triggered by something, it's you. And that is a sign that you need to learn other ways of thinking about things. Because the reason we have these stories is to help us navigate the world. And by having these stories, it makes the world more predictable but when we find the world is not predictable, we're frustrated, we're disappointed, we keep meeting unexpected things, nothing goes as we were wanting it to, that's a sign that your stories aren't working and it's time to change your stories. So I think noticing the moment you start to feel unsettled is a really, really important habit. It's probably one of the most difficult habits as well. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm kind of noticing sort of like a difference between the stories which, you know, or persuading or influencing the stories that other people are telling themselves, but then simultaneously being aware of the stories that you're telling yourself and how impactful that can have on, on really your entire world that you've created. What is a way in which people can vet or or check in with themselves to make sure that the stories that they're, they're telling themselves are maybe accurate or helpful? Well, I, I would say a really important thing to remember is that a story is just a story. Reality is way more complicated than our stories can ever comprehend. And if I give a, a scientific example, every matter that we can perceive in the universe, we perceive through the electromagnetic spectrum. Some matter we perceive through x-rays, some through visible light, some through sound, and, and so on. And visible light, which is our strongest sense being able to see, visible light only accounts for 0.0035% of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, an analogy is if you go into a library, it's got all of these books on all of these floors, it's like only being able to read a single pixel. 
<laughs> of all of these books, you can only read a single pixel. And I think this statistic shows that there is so much we will never, ever, ever, ever be able to comprehend. And reality is unbelievably complicated. That's why we have stories, because it puts a layer of meaning between our brain and the complexity of reality and makes it possible to navigate reality. But we have to remember that our stories are not reality. I think uh, maybe a, a sensitive example is Brexit. Has Brexit been a good thing or a bad thing? Or we'll find people who believe it's a good thing and people who believe it's a bad thing because they've all been impacted in different ways. And some people believe, you know, we should have been independent from the European Union. Some people believe we're better off being within the European Union. I think the reality is we will not know the impact of Brexit probably for centuries to come, maybe even millennia. We won't know. It's exactly the same with the Shanghai lockdown. It was a very traumatic experience for me and many others. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? We won't know for a long time to come. So I think it's really important to remember that these are just stories. They are not reality. Reality is always going to be so much more complicated than our stories can make out. One really good habit to compensate for the, for the weakness of stories is to just experiment and try different things. Try things you'd never try before. Step out of your comfort zone and just explore new realities. Like, for example, as a small business owner, I tried learning how to do SEO. I quickly learned it was way beyond my abilities, but I learned new things, new ways of thinking about marketing and about running my business. I wouldn't have got those things if I hadn't tried. And so by trying new things, you allow yourself to realize what might be flawed in the stories you believe in and find other stories which might better serve you. So always stay open to the possibility that your stories are just not real. <laughs> so the story habit methodology, how can business leaders use this to solve real problems that they are facing? So for example, one thing that many businesses at the moment are, are facing is the prospect of a recession. How can they apply this to, to solve those problems? So for Relate, Challenge, Resolve, they each focus on one particular problem. Relating is all about making your ideas understandable, being able to communicate with impact. Challenging is all about changing people's minds. And resolving is all about getting people to take action. And if you can master each one of these different skills, you can start to solve those different challenges because these challenges are so common in leadership roles. And if I give an example right now, what a lot of leaders are experiencing is the great resignation. A lot of people have realized that I don't want a job. <laughs> I don't want to exchange my time for a fixed salary and work in a company that doesn't engage me in any way whatsoever. The leaders and the businesses that are struggling to adapt to that are the ones who are not relating to these people. If you start solving problems by relating to the people you're working with, you'll understand what the solution is. And the solution is change the way you're running your business, make it more reasonable, adjust your expectations because we're living in a new reality now. And so start by relating. I would argue relating is a fundamental skill that so many leaders 
they don't master it. They just go straight to challenging and trying to push people to take action. Relating is really important. But at the same time, there's a bit of a caveat here because snake oil salesmen, scam artists just relate. They are amazing at relating. You know, if you watch any YouTube video, every so often the adverts will pop up and there'll be some get rich quick scheme. Like here's how you can make money trading foreign currency or buying crypto or here's a new hack for selling, you know, drop shipping on Amazon. They're relating to people because people want to make money fast and live a cool life, but they're not challenging people to think realistically about situations. Good leaders will also challenge what people believe in and make them realize that there's a different way of doing things. And resolving is all about getting them to take action. There's a number of ways of doing that. But long story short, the problems this can help leaders solve, communicating with impact, changing people's minds and getting people to take action. What do you think is a leader's greatest weakness? In my experience, a lot of leaders I've worked with lack empathy. And that also comes back to relating. But I think this is probably the most common leadership weakness I have seen. And empathy is really simple. Again, simple doesn't mean easy. It's really simple. It's as much as imagining being the other person and guessing what they are thinking and feeling. And that's it. And the more time you can spend imagining being them, the better an understanding you'll get of them. You won't necessarily 100% understand them, but you'll get better at it. The challenge is that when we most need to empathize is when we are least capable of it. You know, for example, typical scenario for many leaders and managers is you were in the car on the way to on your way to work and the car broke down, you had to get fixed, you got to work and you you know, customer was complaining about you being late responding to their complaint, and then your leader gave you a call and put pressure on you, and you've got all of this stuff going on, and then one of your team members comes to you and says, I have this problem. What do I do? And in that moment, you're like, I've got my own stuff to take care of. But in that moment, you are least capable of empathizing because you are so focused on your own things, but you really need to empathize. Because if you don't empathize with them, you create distance. And when you create that distance, you create problems. <laughs> but if you show empathy and, okay, I can see it's a problem for you. I don't have time right now, but I will try and help you a bit later this afternoon. If you can show that, you reduce that distance. And the closer you are to people, the easier things become with them. So I think empathy is the most common leadership weakness I, I've seen. And you've touched on it briefly before, but you're obviously in Shanghai at the moment and there's quite a lot going on there. How have you utilized kind of everything that you teach the people that you work with and, and everything that you've learned? How have you utilized it to sort of deal with the very unique situation that you're in? Mm. For, for anyone who, who's listening who, who doesn't know a lot about the Shanghai lockdown, it was really, really severe. Severe to the extent that I had to ration my food. If my kids, like they're two years old and four years old, if they tested positive at one point, they could have been taken to a quarantine center on their own, forcibly separated from their parents. Uh, there were metal fences put up on the entrances to some people's building, sometimes blocking the fire escapes. It became a really, really messy situation. And how did I apply that? I think 
focusing on the most helpful story. It's so easy to get sucked into the story that this is unreasonable, this is ridiculous, and just make yourself really angry. Uh, it's so easy to do that. But it's so, so important to remember that no matter what the situation, there is good and bad always. There's always different ways of looking at it. And, you know, I was rationing my food. So, yeah, there's a chance to stop eating the comfort food that I got so used to. In the first two weeks of lockdown, I was actually in the best shape of my life. I was eating so healthily. I was spending a lot more time with my kids. We were at home all the time. It was so important to protect my mental health that I was exercising every single day. And I had the motivation to stay extremely disciplined. The motivation is kind of gone now the lockdown has lifted, but there were good things that came out of that. And I think it's in those moments where you can go either way, either you can focus on the story that infuriates you or traumatizes you. A prerequisite is to find the story that inspires you and motivates you and nourishes you. Because again, it's just a story. It's not reality. It's just a story. So choose whatever story serves you best. And I think that's specifically very relevant to COVID, I think, for, for many people, because now that was sort of in the UK, anyway, out of the sort of worst part of it, it's very easy to look back at summer 2020 and think, oh, like I spent loads of time at home, you know, with my family. It was sunny. Like it was, it was this kind of really great time that I got to do all these like things by myself and with my family. Whereas obviously, you know, at the time, many people didn't actually choose to, to think about that story, even though it was happening it was only something that might have been realized afterwards. So, so yeah, I think that's like a really important point to kind of find the story that's helpful and beneficial to you because you might not realize that at the time you might've been focusing on the really traumatic story, which is natural, but you know, there, there is some kind of positive story potentially that could be more helpful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, Brexit, for example, a very sensitive subject I've just decided, you know, I don't live in Britain. I haven't been affected by Brexit. So it's easy for me to say this, but I've just decided that it's a chance to adapt. It's a new reality. It's a chance to adapt. And, you know, with a new reality comes new opportunities. So I know a lot of people have really struggled with it. Some people's businesses are really badly hit, but it's a chance to adapt and maybe find a better business, a better way of doing things. It really is a matter of which way you look at it. Yeah, that's a really important takeaway. This final section of the podcast is called Answer the Internet. So this is where we scour the internet for questions that the public needs answers to. This question is from Mag Creatures on Reddit, and they ask, why do billionaires and successful business personalities love to tell stories about how they fire people? Why do billionaire fans love these stories? I'm not sure if I if I have heard these stories, actually, but if they're telling stories about why they fire people, I, I guess it's because they're showing what they value. You're telling a story about an action you've done, especially an action that is going to trigger people. It's telling a story about what you value. And, uh, you know, that's probably why they are successful as well. Uh, if they've taken those actions, it's because they value certain things. 
Uh, and that's probably why billionaire fans love those stories, because it shows the values that billionaires live by. And, you know, if you admire billionaires, then you probably want to know what values they live by. So that's my guess. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, no, that, that is, that's a really good answer. What makes a great business leader to you? What makes a great business leader to me? Mm, I think, you know, the word empathy comes back to mind. Uh, I think you really have to be a good listener, great at relating to people, great at building connections with people because leader, leadership is all about people. Strategy is about strategy. Technology is about technology. Leadership is about people. And to lead people, you need to connect with people. So I think empathy uh, is probably the, the answer to that question. Thanks, Jamie. That's a really great answer. Um, now that we're coming to the end of the podcast, do you have any final words for the audience? Thank you. Uh, you can check me out on my website, shapingpaths.com, all one word. That's my company name. Uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look for Jamie Dixon, D-I-X-O-N. You'll find my face on an orange background. One thing is just to stay curious and don't get too bought in to the stories that we believe in. Because as I've mentioned a lot of times already, they're not reality. And at some point, something will prove our stories wrong. We'll have to update our stories anyway. So don't take them too seriously. Be open to new experiences, new ways of looking at the world. Learn to admit that you're wrong about certain things. Um, and yeah, life will be a bit easier, I think. 